Computer, initialize Holosuite. to another episode of The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Perry. And I'm your host, David. Tonight we're talking about Season 2, Episode 25, Tribunal. Before we continue, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts as The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. Absolutely, and as I say every week, you should find us and follow us and engage with us because we're a good time, and I promise you that if you join us on, uh, especially on Twitter, you're going to enjoy it. So find us, follow us, ask questions, send comments, whatever it is, and uh, enjoy talking about Deep Space Nine with us. Yeah. So as David said, tonight we are talking about uh, the 25th episode of Season 2, Tribunal, but before we get into that, David, how was your week? Oh, it's fine. This uh, this week at work has been dead. Like no one uh, was just dead, dead as a doornail. Uh, but of course, as soon as I say that, my uh, my uncle was in town and he was visiting my brother and my nieces, and so they were like, "Hey, we're in the area. We can come visit." And what happens? Not ten minutes after they arrive, customers come in. I've been dead all week, and bam, there they are. And so I got to spend a little bit of time with family for a little bit before I had to go help these people. And, you know, I helped them out, but of course they didn't buy anything today. You know, maybe they will, but spent, you know, a good bit of time with each couple and still no, no bites today. So I was just like, isn't that how it always works? <laughs> Absolutely. Especially with like food, you know, you go to make lunch and, oh. you know, ugh, yeah, I like remember, every time. I remember my retail days and I swear that was, there, were, when, there was a particular store that I worked and that was always our thing. If we ever got really slow, we would just say, hey, go when you, go order lunch. Somebody go get lunch. Because as soon as one of someone left to go get lunch and came back with food, like yeah. right on their heels, there would be a group of people. So it was right. like, yeah, we're too slow. Go go get lunch. Go get food. Go do something. So It's it's the modern version of like praying to the rain gods. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, um, I don't miss that at yeah. all. <laughs> at yeah. all. So. Other than that, um, not much else is going on. Just watching Westworld. The new episode was good. Um, watching so you're Master en- Chef. Yeah. So you're enjoying the new season. So far, um, they they did something with this most recent episode, which like if you're a fan of the show, you're like, okay, this this builds on the storyline. But I've already mentioned they do a big time jump from the last season to this one. And it's it's a jarring time jump, to be, just to be frank. It's it's a time jump, and uh, it's not that it's a bad time jump. Like it's moving the story along, but it also feels like the story took a hiatus. Like the the plot kind of ground to a halt for a bit, and now it's picking back up. And it's picking back up. It's got some interesting things going on, mm-hmm. um, but it does feel a bit jarring to have this gap in time between the third and fourth season. Um, so yeah, I, I, it's interesting. They got some questions being presented. The audience doesn't have any answers to yet. You know, it's not like they've 
foreshadowed what those answers are going to be in past seasons and you can predict it. You're just having to go along for the ride and I'm there for it. Like I'll be there. Um, but yeah, so, so far it's, it's interesting. You know, it's one of those shows where it's like, you have to wait till like the whole season's out before you can make a final judgment on what everything happened. But so far it's been good. Um, but there is one thing I'll talk about in a minute, but it's more a thing that has to do with you. I oh. told you about Eagle Moss going yes. down, or at Go least going for bankruptcy. Yeah, uh, and you're building the enterprise, the, yes. the Eagle Moss product. So tell so, us. I mean, it's your so, story. Yeah. Well, this. so just to catch everybody up real quick, I, I know we've mentioned this probably like way back in season one. I signed up for the Eagle Moss subscription where they send you the various kits you need to build a rather large version of the Enterprise D. Um, and I've been doing this for several months now. I, I think I'm I'm on like month eight or nine, somewhere in there. Because right. I know I signed up for it not too long after I got my current job and I've been there for about a year and some change. So that's why I'm, I'm thinking it's about eight or nine months in. Right. I remember initially figuring this up and everything. And basically the way they send the cases or the kits, it's one a month. And it was going to take slightly over two years to get all of the kits at that one a month rate to right. get all the pieces to build it. So now, of course, we find out, you know, David was alerting me uh, yesterday and the day before, I think, that um, there was a rumor going around that Eagle Moss was um, filing for bankruptcy. Turns out that's true. It's in the UK, so they use a different term, but it's essentially bankruptcy. And so there's a lot of, of things up in the air as to whether or not anybody's going to be able to get anything from Eagle Moss, let alone the remaining kits you need to build the Enterprise. So I... Right took to the internet i was looking there's all kinds of stuff out there there's youtube videos about it reddit's all over it and everything else but basically there's no definite answer as to whether or not those people who were getting the kits are going to be able to continue getting the kits most people the common consensus is no that right. unless another company picks this up somewhere along the way that no you're just going to be sol wherever that is that you are with the kits so I'm very upset because that's one, a lot of money and a lot of time wasted on right. this thing that, you know, it was like, I remember when I first told David that I was even thinking about doing it. It was one of those, um, I don't really do things for myself often. Most right. of what I do goes towards my kid and just, you know, making sure she's comfortable and happy and taking care of and everything else. And that was how right. I justified doing this project was that it was finally something that was truly for me and about an interest that I had. And now it's kaput, basically. So I'm like, yeah, of course, the one time I finally do something for myself, <laughs> it, it gets canceled, you know? So, so it's like, yeah, lesson learned. I, I'm not allowed yeah. to have joy. Apparently. Exactly. Yep. So, yep. No good D goes unpunished, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, obviously, we've been following this story rather closely. Um, but as it stands right now, it looks like Eagle Moss is done. Um, but in looking it up, David, I told you, you know, I found a lot of a lot of complaints against Eagle Moss. You know, there was – and, I mean, just it ran the crapshoot. Everything from customer service issues to wrong orders being sent to orders not being sent at all, even though they took right. the money – um, just a bunch of things like top to bottom issues with this company. Right. And so it seems like this is kind of like a long time coming and right. maybe that's also my fault for not 
double checking before getting into bed with Eagle Moss and doing this long term project. But right. I was just so taken with the idea of building the Enterprise. And it was all, you know, sanctioned. You know, Paramount had signed up on it. It was, you know, every everything along the way, it checked the necessary boxes to maintain my interest. But right. I should have known, you know, I really should have looked deeper. And I think I would have found all this stuff. And that probably would have brought me up short. So, yeah, I mean, there's obviously no way for me to get any kind of refund for the kits that I have. And if yeah. they're together or anything like that. So... And then we were speculating as to whether or not, you know, we'd be able to, like, find the kits. I'd be able to find the kits elsewhere, but not sure if they would have produced all the kits already and were just sending them to you piecemeal, or if they were just kind of making them and putting them together as you completed certain steps. Right. Um, Seems like they were doing it more the latter than the former because they would lose more money if they were doing it the other way. So probably just a lot of people stuck. Yeah, that's gonna be. Everyone has the first kit. Only like two people have the hundredth kit or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because depending, because I mean, this was going on for a while. Like, I didn't, I didn't sign up for it the first time that they announced it. They had been doing this kind of thing for a while, so I'm sure there are people further along in the process, and and there may even be some people who've already completed it. But I doubt there's anybody who like right now has enough to be like, oh, I've completed mine and here's extra or anything like that, you know? Right. So it's it's going to be interesting to see how they pick this up. And then even if another company picks it up, are you going to be able to like just kind of transfer over and be like, this was my account number. I already had kits A through X or A through, uh, you know, J. Can I get, you know, the next ones or whatever that is? Right. No one knows. No one knows. Yeah. So yeah. again, just kind of very disheartening. Yeah. Very disheartening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Part of the reason I was sympathizing with you there is, you know, I, I collect transformer figures for the of the live action films, the first three, like I've, I've limited myself just the first three live action films. I don't do the TV show or the 1986 film. Like, um, I liked the original, you know, live action Michael Bay films buy those and i have a nice collection by now and there's one there's a set of them that transform in the second film a group of them transform into a devastator he's the a big one it's like the first time you really see them all or at least a group of them actually combined into something bigger usually it's just you know one of them trucks a robot and back and forth mm-hmm. um and so there's a there's a set of them it's eight of them and it's been like two years that they had, you know, they announced it. They've been, you know, delivering one at a time. And the last one is supposed to be coming. Like I've seen reviews for it online. It's available. I already have a pre-order. I'm just waiting for them to send it. I'm like, damn, I'd be so mad. <laughs> like Perry, if they were like, Oh, sorry guys. Uh, yeah. you ain't getting it. The leg, the last leg of yeah. the giant robot isn't going to come. <laughs> now, now I will admit that, you know, even though I was getting these kits once a month, I was not building them every single month mainly because it was it was kind of um it felt silly i felt like i needed to get you know at least three to four months and then i would build and i would wait another three to four months and then build again because you know at one point they would just send you like the my my first kit was uh, one of the nacelles so i mean that was like really they took me like five minutes put together snap in place and i was done you know and so then it's it made more sense to me to wait to get the pieces and see what locked together. But that's when I also realized they were not sending you the pieces in any particular sequence. So you couldn't just like gradually, like if I started with the cell, I wasn't then building down into 
the drive section of the Enterprise because the next right. few pieces that came were like from the saucer section. So it was like nothing. It was like they were intentionally doing it so that really you had to keep your subscription going because they were never giving you enough to like complete. So in, in complete real portions, I guess I should say. So it's like if you were building a puzzle, it's not like they start in one corner and gradually move to another corner and then build the whole thing. It's like they give you a corner and then they give you a side and then they give you a middle piece. And then, right. Wow, right. that's so you, messed you, up. <laughs> yeah, you would receive several kits that were just this one corner and then the next couple of kits you got were the center and then the next couple of kits you got were the border pieces and then the right. next couple of kits you got were this other corner and so there's these whole big gaps that you were getting of pieces and nothing quite linked together yet. And you, huh. you're just waiting for those other bits and pieces. So Part of me wonders if like it's necessary, like you got to build from the bottom up kind of situation, but it sounds like they were just, yeah, I thought about that too. It. I yeah. thought about that too. And I was like, maybe they're doing it this way so that you can like, yeah, cause you're going to have to put it on a base so that you can display it and everything else. So I thought maybe they were built, you were allowing you to build it that way, but they, that's not it. Based upon what I have already, again, it's just all over the place. Nothing fits and nothing is truly enough of a base to mount to anything else. Especially not because I went ahead and looked it up because, of course, you know, I've got to. And um, looking at the base that they would eventually be sending with it when you got to that part, the base definitely connects to the bottom portion of the star drive. So you need to have that piece and it's and I've not received it yet. I don't know if anybody else has, but I have not received it yet. So, so yeah, so I was just like, yeah, a lot of pieces, a lot of pieces that I need. So, yeah, kind of, um, kind of upset. I'm trying not to be too upset about it. Just kind of yeah. being like lesson learned, you know, and, um, you know, we well, talked. I mean, there's always that glimmer of hope that even if they're bankrupt, that they start it back up again in the future. It's like it's delayed, but you still get it eventually, you know, cross your fingers. Well, you know, yeah, I mean, of- I'm. I'm going to basically have to like box everything up and then just put it in storage and wait to see what happens. And I hope that when they, if, and when they do announce that they've resumed this process again, that I can, that they will do what I'm hoping, which is I'll be able to tell them, Hey, the last kit you sent me was kit H. Can you send me I and keep going from there, you know, and hope that they're like, Nope, we have to start you over. We've lost all your record and we can't do it. That would really that would really upset me if they right. did it that way. But you yeah. know, we'll see what happens. In the meantime, I've got several assorted pieces together in this giant tub where I've been <laughs> keeping everything. So I guess that could just go in storage now. I won't really be needing it for the foreseeable future. And right. We'll just see. Yeah. Uh, um. The other thing I forgot to mention on my end to just yeah. go back to me for a second is just that um, we're we're gonna move. We've decided. The apartment oh, nice. we're in, uh, it's going to be a fifteen percent rent increase. Um, I was okay with it on my end, to be frank. I was like, I'd be more, but okay. But my roommate was like, Nah, I don't want to pay that. So we're looking for a new place, and I gotta <laughs> pack up. Just like you have a tub of of your enterprise, I'm gonna have to get a tub for all of my figures and safely store those. That would make me think of that. You know, store them. Oh man, I gotta move those. So. <laughs> Of course, the one problem with moving is they want you to like, you know, as soon as you file for a place, you know, you put your, you know, you, you apply for a place. They want you to move in right away and start paying rent. And mm-hmm. our, our rent, our, our lease doesn't end until September and it's in the middle of July. So it's like, 
we we're going to have like this whole month and a half of like not quite knowing where the next place is going to be because they're not going to let us pick a place just yet until it's closer for us to move in. So I was on the phone with someone today about that. But the place that we were talking about may be gone by the time they would let us move in so they yeah. won't let us apply for it. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I'm sure we'll figure it out. Yeah, housing is um, really crazy right now everywhere, you know. And um, especially was, Austin. Yeah, especially Austin. I mean, I was thinking myself here, you know, about moving. I know we've talked about that a couple of times, and I've looked at everything from just kind of moving outside of Austin a little bit, something that's a bit more, you know, affordable and, of course, more space for me and my kid, but also going back to uh, my uh, home state of Kentucky. So right. a lot of things up in the air, but it's just, it's just crazy because it's i'm not necessarily saying i'm dissatisfied with austin but more it's just like cost of living man i just gotta go where i can you know get the most bang for the buck basically so yeah yeah right and right now with especially with my job being work from home and we seem to be staying this way at least for the foreseeable future now would be the best time to kind of like move out find a more affordable place and be set up there and be comfortable right because you know, I don't have to really go anywhere. Yeah. So, so yeah. Uh, you know, I'm looking into it too, but my lease isn't up until February. So I've got a bit more time than you do, <laughs> uh, you know, but yeah, that's what I'm also looking for. Yeah. Well, it was funny because my roommate, when he went in and, you know, put in the notice saying, all right, we're not going to, we're not going to renew. And I've been here for seven years. Like I've been in this apartment complex for seven years. Uh, apparently there were a number of other notices up on the board of people also, yeah, saying they're not going to renew. So I wonder if they're not pricing themselves out with the market. They're well, seeing... I mean, like I said, you know, the housing market everywhere, rentals, homes, all of it, it is crazy. There was a whole big yeah. thing about the uh, the rent hikes everywhere, yeah. and it's forcing a lot of people out. So right. um, they're talking about how it's potentially going to cause another housing crash like we had, you know, what was that? 2008. 2008? Yeah, yeah. You know, so... Who knows? I mean, yeah, a bunch of people bought up houses and stuff back then, too. But we've also seen, um, you know, a lot of companies and private um, organizations buying homes and stuff, too. That seems to be a new a new issue. Buying up homes and then trying to rent them out, you know, Verbos, Airbnbs and all those things, which then also drive up um, housing costs in right. areas as well. So. I mean, yeah, I get it. You're trying to make money and turn it into a business or whatever, but at the same time, you're hurting a lot of the people who already live in those areas and anybody who could potentially try to move into those areas who would be paying actual, you know, rent or mortgages, which, you know, those things help the communities. You know, that's how schools get their funding and and subsidies and tax breaks and things like that. And, you know, those same things don't apply when it's now owned necessarily by a company to the same extent. So, right. So, yeah, a lot of things out there right now I feel like are not good, but I don't know how that's going to end up with anything else. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, this <sighs> one for me, I have I have begun pickling things. It's my new experiment. Oh. Um, and I have, to, I have to say I'm enjoying it. So um, <laughs> I watched this video, and I was talking to a friend of mine who's actually going to be in town next week. And uh, she was telling me all about how she likes fermented um, vegetables. And uh, so she's got her own little recipe for stuff like that. But then I was looking, I just happened to find a video because, you know, Google listens to everything you say, really. And it 
showed me videos of how to like quickly pickle things. And I realized that in all of my culinary experience, that's one thing I never really did was pickle right. things. So it's a pretty simple process, pretty straightforward, and it tastes great. Like, I don't know why I didn't do this before. So like, I've got, <laughs> I've got pickled ginger, pickled, um, um, carrots, cucumbers, um, onions, all of I mean, is it. it it's, is it pretty much just, you know, dunking those things in vinegar and letting it sit for a bit? Yeah. It's like, it's vinegar, water, salt, sugar. And then you can add whatever other little spices or whatever else to it that you want. But that's essentially the pickling stuff is the vinegar, the water, the salt, and the sugar. And gotcha. so, so yeah, it's real simple. It's real basic. Um, you know, my, my daughter loves, well, pickles. And so it was a great little like science experiment for her. You know, when we chopped up the cucumbers and put them in there and explaining the process and we watched the videos together and she's so excited that, you know, in as little as 30 minutes, you can have your own pickles. But of course, if you let it sit for longer, then be it's better. better. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, we've got some lined up right now that we're eager to taste at the end of next week. How long does know? that take? I mean, I, I would think pickles would take like a month or more, maybe even a year, but well, I don't know anything about it. So Yeah, so well, the video, all the videos that I've watched so far that explained it, it was like if, you, if you're just looking for something really quick, it takes about 30 minutes, right? Put everything in the jar or in the container, whatever it is you're using, all your ingredients, whatever the f f uh, vegetable is, throw it in there, seal it up. 30 minutes later, ready to eat. But again, the longer you leave it, the more the flavors intensify. So, yeah. so that's, to me, that makes more sense if there is a particular flavor you're going for and you're adding various spices and stuff to it. Your peppercorns, your mustard seed, dill, sage, whatever that is that you're throwing in there, you're going to want to leave those things for a much longer time. That's why we have some set aside for the end of next week to try. Right. And I want to and I want to see what that's going to be. Now, I read some stuff, and there are some people who I guess they go more the fermenting side, and they leave theirs out. All of ours are refrigerated. There will be nothing fermenting <laughs> in my home. I don't want to deal with potential mishaps, smells, and also, <laughs> yeah, if you don't do it right, you know, you can get into like bacteria and stuff like that that could make Ooh. you sick. So you have to you have to really be on it for the fermenting process and to be quite honest i just didn't feel like i wanted to give it that kind of attention right now well, i imagine that so. fermenting i mean it probably would take a while but also could be like a fire hazard too yeah i mean probably take a while but yeah so so yeah welcome to star trek the fire caves where uh, hey. you learn about pickling and austin rinsing situations <laughs> so hey we're still in line with it because you know cisco is a chef i think he would appreciate that we talk oh, about um i haven't seen a little cisco bit. doing much chef oh, stuff mild spoiler but <laughs> um there it is um yeah oh, mild so, spoiler that's a that's one i'll have not i had no idea <laughs> so to, and so to wrap this up a little bit further along that little cooking rabbit hole i was again for those of you who do follow on our Twitter page recently um, there was a little comment in there about Strange New Worlds and how Captain Pike was cooking a lot on the show and so somebody had posted a thing about how Star Trek was too woke and how they had feminized Christopher Pike by making him cook and do dishes all the time right so like I've said before we I try to keep the Twitter stuff very 
Star Trek Central, and we don't get into really politics or whatever. But on this one, I felt like I had to respond because, again, of my my um, <laughs> love of the character of Cisco. Yeah. So I posted a picture, and it was Cisco cooking with his son. And I said, "Quick, somebody go tell Cisco he's gay for cooking." <laughs> just I could just um, trying to imagine really quick somebody getting in Captain Cisco's face of all people and being like, "Yeah, you know." Yeah. I think, well, be, I, I think mean, it'd be hilarious. <laughs> there's also um, on TNG, you know, Riker tried cooking. He was terrible. Everyone hated uh, his food, but he tried he, it. He wasn't terrible. The eggs were terrible. They they were they were bad <laughs> eggs. Oh right, yeah, made. they weren't they weren't Earth eggs. They were yes, other eggs. they were Owan eggs. I remember correctly. And the only person who thought they were delicious was, was da- Data. Worf. Oh, no, Worf. Worf. I'm sorry. Worf. Data, Worf Data was, didn't eat them. Worf, Worf was going Worf on. Worf them up. Right. Data yeah. didn't eat them. Uh, Pulaski tried them, thought they were horrible. Uh, Jordy tried them and coughed himself out of eating anymore. <laughs> and Worf consumed them eagerly. Yes. So, yeah. yes. That's right. That's right. That's right. But it got me to thinking as well, and they're on like it seems like all the shows have done something that shows them doing cooking, preparing food, whatever. As we just said, Riker did his bit. Um, I know that Captain Kirk cooked in the movie, so you get to see that in one of the movies he cooks. Um, and then... I have to say, I mean, I, I love the idea of a replicator, the idea that you could just have food. But mm-hmm. I think there really would be something missed by – I mean, I think the show even mentions that, that things don't taste exactly the same as right. the original product. They do. Um, they do yeah. mention that a few times, that, you know, as close as the replicator can get to a lot of things, it's just not the same because it is – the basis of the replicator is that it's reconstituted matter, that literally right. anything is then transmuted into something else. So – Whatever you think of that process, there is something that is either lost or gained, depending on how the the machine is programmed right. to give you certain things. So, exactly. yeah, the fact that you have people who still grow their own vegetables and use those in their cooking and meal preparation and things like that, I'm, yeah, I would agree. So right. you'll get to see more of Cisco cooking, but I just thought that that was so funny when that popped up, and I was like, could you imagine – I want to see the person bold enough to say this to Cisco's face. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. See what happens. I imagine Pike, I mean, I haven't seen it, obviously, but I imagine Pike is like, that's part of like why he's kind of a charismatic individual. Like, yeah, he's passionate about this thing. Um, and he uses it as yeah. a tool. I mean, he yes, he does show off that he's got a lot of culinary skill, but he uses it more as a way to kind of like bring down um, – like bring down walls with people instead of everybody yeah. having to stand on ceremony and protocol all the time. They're sharing meals together and they're sharing their ideas and reflecting on whatever the situation is it's, that they're dealing with. And they're talking in a very informal manner. And that's how he generates loyalty, camaraderie, friendship with his crew is they feel right. this connection to him because he doesn't. And it's not like it's always the same people that he's eating with or preparing meals for and like that. It's we've seen everything from a open party setting to them doing breakfast to you know just little things like that so it's not i don't think that it's a big deal i didn't really think anything of it but when i saw that on <laughs> on twitter i just i laughed so hard i was like really you, we'll have to you can't as, even cook now as you're as you're talking <laughs> my my thought is like well then wait a minute where is he getting the food from unless he's just getting it from the replicator in a raw form like you know raw meat and then cooking it i don't know <laughs> well so i mean they they have not sh- especially with meat they haven't really shown where meat sources come from so i believe that that's one of those it's 
it's either humanely harvested from somewhere or they are relying on replicators for at least their meat. Raw but materials. That actually kinda... would be a fascinating way to approach the idea mm-hmm. of, you know, animal farming. Um, yeah. Are cows and chickens farmed like they are today in the future? Yeah. If you can replicate the raw materials, do you need them or do they... Yeah, all kinds of questions. Yeah, all kinds ask. of questions because I mean we keep we keep cattle and they and cattle consume a lot of land, water, food, a lot of resources in right. order to raise these animals just for us to consume. Right. But if we suddenly have the technology to do this another way, would we still keep cows and chickens and all the rest of them around? Would we still do that? Maybe in some limited capacity, perhaps. But would we really? I mean, we we've now developed a thing that takes care of that need. So would we really, but then also on the enterprise, you know, they talk about, you know, like hydroponic space and like that, where they would grow fruits and vegetables and stuff. So at least that part seems to be the same. We just made a farm in space and carried it. (laughs) So, so yeah. Um, but (laughs) we are not here to talk about farming in space. (laughs) (laughs) Farming in space. (laughs) We are here to talk about The Tribunal, the 25th episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And it is a great episode, and the second in our installment of O'Brien Must Suffer. Oh, and is this one of those? This is one of those. So, we will now kick that off. David, would you like to give our summation? I'll do it. Alrighty. Okay, guys, so... The tribunal starts off with Chief O'Brien. Uh, he is leaving the station with Keiko to go on vacation the first time in like five years, as we find out. Uh, initially, he's on the, you know, the ops and Dax and Kira and Cisco basically have to grab him by the shoulders and throw him out in the airlock to get him to just go already. Um, but they're on. He and Keiko are on their runabout. They're leaving. They're getting into a romantic mood after uh, O'Brien makes the mistake of revealing that he actually brought some technical manuals with him. But before they can enjoy themselves and their privacy, a Cardassian ship stops them, and Gull Evek uh, comes on the screen, stops them, says, we are going to board and and arrest you uh, for some crimes that we're not going to detail. And uh, O'Brien is... uh, taken by the Cardassians and uh, Keiko is sent back to uh, the station uh, and that starts our episode. So Miles O'Brien is uh, taken to Cardassia Prime and while he's there he is uh, asked if he's willing to confess to the crime that he is already convicted of. Uh, he's already convicted of his crime. They're not telling him what it is. Yeah, the uh, punishment is execution. Is he going to confess? And he starts saying, I am a member of the Federation. I am Chief uh, uh, Engineer Miles O'Brien. And so they you know, knock him out. They pull one of his teeth um, and, you know, leave him in kind of a rough state. And when he wakes up, um, there's a woman who uh, appears before him and reveals that she is the... Uh, the, the chief archon, uh, her name is Mokbar, and she kind of gently tells him that, you know, he'll be taken care of. They've already, for example, uh, given him a 
conservator, you know, the, 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 the defense attorney, a defense lawyer. He's Kovat, and he's he's the best at his job. And, um, you know, things things will will happen. But she, again, refuses to tell him what his uh, crimes are, what uh, why he's already been proven guilty. You know, they've already, they already have the evidence that he's guilty and he's already going to be executed. So they'll, they'll be in two days time. Uh, they'll be going forward with the trial and it's all basically a done deal. So of course, back on the station, Keiko is like, what the heck's going on? This is ridiculous. Um, and Odo agrees that he will help, uh, O'Brien, by acting as his representative, um, the Nestor. Uh, it's, it's not exactly sure what this person is. There's some sort of advisor. But um, Odo, back when the station was originally a Cardassian station, was allowed at some point to become a Nestor. Uh, this is, again, some sort of advisor. Um, he never really had a chance to really use this new position. But when Mokbar, uh, this judge, the, the female judge, uh, you know, announces that they're trying him and that, uh, you know, they're not going to allow any uh, Federation people to come to the trial, but they will let Keiko come because she's family and they let family come. Uh, Odo insists that he be allowed to come because of his position as Nestor, which is very important because it turns out that O'Brien's attorney, Kovat, is not, I mean, Let's just put it this way. If, if it had been me in O'Brien's place, I'd have strangled this guy so fast. <laughs> yeah, Conservator Kovat is not there to really defend O'Brien. He is there, as he says, to make it easier for O'Brien to accept his fate. You know, he's going to be executed. Um, so the best thing he can do is confess and, you know, come to terms with, you know, his crime and his punishment. So... Uh, why doesn't O'Brien go ahead and confess? Um, as Kovat talks, and he does it in a very simpering, very, very condescending way, he basically says that trials are just, you know, meant for the people. It's just meant to, uh, to you know, isn't it a good thing, O'Brien, that the people would know that criminals are punished and that we always get our man? Um, and O'Brien you know, it's like, this is ridiculous. You know, I have no way to defend myself. I don't even know what I'm charged of. What is it that I'm being, you know, accused of? What is this crime? Um, it turns out, back on the station, uh, Dax and the others have figured out that 24 photon warheads have disappeared from the station. Um, 24 of these warheads uh, are, are gone, and uh, O'Brien's voice was used to go into this uh, locker, this weapons locker, to get out the weapons. And they're able to confirm that the, the Maquis uh, recently uh, got a hold of some photon launchers. So it's looking like what's going to be charged, uh, Brian's going to be charged of working with the Maquis to uh, get them weapons to help them fight the Cardassians. Um, so the as we, if we know O'Brien's story, we know that he worked on um, a, a ship uh, in the past. The Rutledge. He was, the Rutledge. He was a part of a uh, the war with Cardassia. The and war so, in Three. Yes. And so he has you know, motive for being having an animus against Cardassians. And so it's looking bad. Again, the voice command getting into the weapons locker. But as Dax begins looking at this uh, recording of O'Brien going into the room to the weapons locker, she realizes that it's a faked recording. 
And if we remember at the beginning of the episode, I forgot to mention this, before O'Brien left the station, he ran into an old buddy. Oh, he uh, he runs into a guy who used to work on the Rutledge, Rutledge with, him, with him, Raylan, Raymond Boone. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he was, he you know, ran into the guy and stopped and they, they caught up. But after Raymond Boone left O'Brien's presence, we saw that he had recorded their conversation. And so we can, at this point, assume that Raymond Boone somehow is the one responsible for getting into his weapons locker. So now it seems that the Cardassians are going to accuse O'Brien of joining up with the Marquis in order to overcome the treaty. Um, And so uh, Odo, when he shows up, he tells that to O'Brien when when Odo and and Keiko go to Cardassia Prime. Now, Keiko can't see O'Brien, but... Uh, Odo, Odo talks to him and kind of interrogates O'Brien briefly. And O'Brien is a bit upset by the interrogation. You know, does Odo really believe him or not? And Odo actually does believe him. And, you know, he had to play bad cop for a minute, but they actually bond. Um, but as Dax is examining that voice file, she realizes that it's a manipulated file. So she knows that it's not O'Brien. So they're going to now present that as evidence to the Cardassians. But the problem is the Cardassians don't allow new evidence to be produced during the trial. So O'Brien is still being railroaded. Bashir is back in his medical uh, offices when he can't turn the lights on, and he is approached by a Maquis in the dark. And the Maquis gentleman says, we had nothing to do with the theft of these warheads. We've heard about it. It's not our responsibility. We had nothing to do with it. Uh, before Bashir can really, you know, question the guy, he disappears. Um, but at this point, we can assume that the Cardassians are somehow involved in setting this whole thing up. The Cardassians have somehow manipulated uh, this this human into getting this uh, this this recording. So, you know, Cisco and Kira get the guy that um, O'Brien knew uh, again. The um, Boone. Boone. They 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 try and interrogate him, and he's like, "I have nothing to." be sorry about there's nothing wrong with me here um but they realize something's up and when they go to talk to him a second time uh they were they 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 reveal they know something about him which we don't quite know yet but um they he he tries to run away now o'brien is in the middle of this trial now it's actually officially being held his you know public defender is actually doing everything he can to like basically lay out the case for why he's guilty, not why he's innocent. Um, Odo is interrupting constantly, trying to prove that O'Brien is innocent, and that's not technically how Cardassian jurisprudence works, so he gets yelled at by the judge. And the reason this is all important is because this is being broadcast to all of Cardassia. This trial is a public trial, and it's the longest one they've ever had. And O'Brien, now that he knows the charges, you know, says he's innocent, you know, they, they ask him, well, aren't you, you know, biased against Cardassians? And he says, well, you know, on some level, yes, but um, everything is, you know, still going to be railroaded. O'Brien's still going to be railroaded. This is how it works. They've already passed the guilty sentence. They've already said he's going to be executed. But right before they can finalize that, uh, who shows up but Cisco with Boone? And as soon as the judge sees Cisco and Boone, she immediately declares her mercy to O'Brien and how she wants to use this as a learning opportunity for the Federation and Cardassians to become closer together and trust each other more. And O'Brien is free to go. And Cisco later reveals 
that Boone is a Cardassian who has been surgically uh, changed to look like a human. Eight years ago, when O'Brien knew him back on Cyclic 3, the real man was probably killed, you know, tortured to death, and they, uh, the Cardassians planted one of their people, surgically altered to look like the man, in Federation, uh, in, on, the sh on the Rutledge ship, basically. And that his family and friends noticed that he immediately was different. This is not the same man. And so um, when they showed up with Boone there, that proved they knew what really happened. And that's why the trial was allowed to end with a quote-unquote merciful uh, you know, sentence for O'Brien. You know, O'Brien was, you know, he's repentant of his crime, so we're going to let him go. Uh, so that's how it ends. Uh, did I miss anything, Perry? No, you hit enough of the highlights. Um, yeah. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. Oh, man. Ah, I was feeling for O'Brien in this one, oh, man. I man, was like, right? oh, <laughs> kangaroo court, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so this episode, we, we get a lot here from this one, and it's one of those that, like, when you think about the long, you know, the long seasons that they have, this one could kind of get lost on you a little bit, considering everything that is about to immediately follow. So I'm not going to give you any spoilers on that, but things really pick up. So we kind of forget stuff like this, but this episode is actually a great callback to something that Gold Ducat said in um, a previous episode that we watched in which, you know, the Maquis was the Maquis episode and the right. Maquis were, you know, um, stirring up trouble in the demilitarized zone and, um, you know, you know, Gold Ducat ends up getting kidnapped and, and all that other kind of stuff. You know, when Cisco goes to rec um, to rescue Gold Ducat and they bring him back to the station. If you remember in that scene when Cisco when they you know Cisco walks into the quarters that Gold Ducat has and he's eating and everything and right. he's talking about trial and punishment on Cardassia, you know, uh, one of the things that um, Gold Ducat says is that, you know, on Cardassia they already know the verdict before the trial ever begins. And right. we already know the outcome. It's always the same thing. You right. know, so now this, you know, this is exactly what we're seeing is happening with O'Brien. We don't know what the crime is. We're not really told until much later. Yet when we see O'Brien, he's already, as he says in the jail cell, he's already been tried, convicted, sentenced, and they're just, you know, he says, "What what need do I have of a lawyer?" Right. Because they already know everything, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was a great callback to that because this is the first time that we're actually now we're on Cardassia. We're seeing right. how Cardassia both looks and how it operates. And I know one thing that really stood out for me that I thought was kind of jarring was this is a very serious matter. We're watching O'Brien be, you know, he's on trial and all the other kind of stuff. And they had kids sitting up there yes. watching. Right. Like had prime seats. There weren't there, there really didn't seem to be anybody else in there except for like the guards, the Nestor, the Archon, the the counselor, you know. Right. And then kids. Right. And so it's just like Wow, you've got little kids in here watching this? And yeah. I mean I guess the counselor kind of explains that by saying, you know, his his trial is more about demonstrating the futility of going against the order of the state. Right. And so they're trying to instill that lesson from a very young age into their children, but it's just like how how sad, how soul-crushing. Right. You know, you're letting your kids watch this person be, you know, railroaded like this. 
Yeah, it really is clear that on Cardassia, they brainwashed those kids early on. This is how things are done here. Uh, you know, there's there's the real thing that makes this whole thing messed up is there is no assumption of innocence for Borf proven guilty. This whole trial is not meant to examine the evidence. Well, on some level it is, but it's supposed to examine the the, the condemning evidence, not the exonerating evidence, but the the evidence that points to guilt. Um, and it, I mean, we don't have a chance to compare how this goes compared to other trials. But if it's anything like this, yeah, if you're accused of anything, you're basically done for. You don't have a chance to defend yourself. You don't. Yeah. You don't get a a, a a defense attorney who's there to, you know, prove your innocence. He's there to get you to confess. He's there to make it, um, to pressure you into into giving in. Um, you don't get a chance to introduce new evidence as it's revealed. You know, that's the whole point of trials: is you cross, you you cross examine people, and if if they if something happens in the trial that requires new evidence or new people to talk. I mean, for example, the most recent thing I can think most people would relate to is the Amber Heard, Johnny Jeff trial. Mm -hmm. uh, at one point, Amber Heard said, um, I forget the actress's name, but one of Johnny Depp's former, uh, Kate, romantic, Moss. Kate Moss, there it is. Uh, she said, Oh, I remember hearing about, you know, Kate Moss was abused by, you know, Johnny Depp and Johnny Depp and his team are off. Like, yeah. High-fiving each other that she brought Kate Moss up. Because they were then allowed to bring Kate Moss as a witness, and she testified on Johnny's behalf. So that's a perfect example of how yeah. our jurisprudence works. Um, you know, they 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 don't do that. Yeah. They, you, they they railroad yeah. you, and you are. I mean, it's from what we can tell, because she said this is the longest trial we've ever had. You're done within a day. Yeah, <laughs> maybe even like a couple hours at so now, that. So, so now this is a recurring theme that we see a lot in sci-fi and in particular star trek that there's a character that is seemingly railroaded by an alien um legal system and it always seems to be this way that their guilt is already known it's already yeah. assured and it takes uh, a lot of maneuvering by other people before they finally get to a point of recognizing that the person is innocent or at least can't be fully held liable for whatever it is they said they were guilty of, right there's right? not enough convicting evidence right. to make them actually guilty or punishable yet right and so it often is you know trying to show that basically our way of doing things you know innocent until proven guilty instead of the other way around is supposed to be the better more virtuous way whether or not you want to agree with that or that you agree that even happens that's on you uh, <laughs> but i just think that it's interesting that this particular motif pops up frequently in in sci-fi shows the person is already guilty we are just trying to show you why they're guilty and even right. a lot of popular science fiction right now that could be seen as i guess um more contemporary not dealing with aliens to a degree it is this way like um i'm thinking of the reboot of battlestar galactica at one point they do a trial for gaius baltar um in that show and again Everybody going into it was already convinced he was guilty. This was not about trying to figure out what he was guilty of. Did he do it? Did he not do it? Or, no, they had already agreed that he was guilty. Right. And now they were trying to basically determine the punishment. what punishment would be the best for this guy. Right. And also trying to absolve themselves of any of their own residual guilt that they may have had for the actions they took while he was in, in power. 
Isn't know? that another example of him in that show, like escaping from the claws of whatever justice might be coming for him? Like he is the slimiest oh, yes. of he, snakes, you know, not even God. snake necessarily. He's just slimy enough that yeah. anything, anytime someone tries to grab him, he slips away. Yeah, um, he's, he, Gaius Baltar in the reboot is definitely one of those characters that, I mean, he is, yeah, he's just oily enough that he always slips away. And just when you think you've got him nailed down, he finds yet another way to get out of it and then to annoy you all over again. Well, and you're it's... just like, oh my God, so many problems would have been solved if they had just killed this guy in <laughs> season one. You know? Just... Well, it's always great because he always he always does it by reinventing himself. Yes. He, he is a changed man. You know, never... he's like a religious figure now. Right. Or, he yeah. never, that's one thing I remember the most about that character. He never actually admits guilt or fault or accepts blame for anything that he does in the show. And in right. fact, they even commented on it at one point. They were just like, you know, it's it was his. They said it was his one redeeming quality that he just always <laughs> finds a way to, you know, again absolve himself of his of his issues right. and, and say that you know. Or what, one of my favorite scenes is where he. It seems like he's acknowledging that he has made mistakes, right? But then he turns it around and says, "But one we're." making mistakes is what makes us all human and that (laughs) makes us wonderful and so my mistakes are divine and it's just like all of this that goes on right and then it's also these mistakes aren't my fault it's part of the society that i was born into and the life that i had and i did all these things to be a part of the society so it's not really me you're mad at (laughs) it's society and it's like Nah, man, it's you. <laughs> you know, it's definitely you. Because, I mean, yeah. plenty of other people took part in the same society and they didn't do the things that he did. But, right. uh, again, there's just that, that constant, you know, even getting to the actual trials and still it being like, we already know you're guilty. We're just going to now lay out for everybody just how heinous you really are. <laughs> and uh, and then something happens. I mean, Next Generation's done it. Deep Space Nine has clearly done it. Voyager's done it. I mean, they all all the Star Treks have done it so far. Um, so in uh, TNG, if we can examine it for a minute, I know there's the episode where Data is having to prove that he is alive. But mm-hmm. remind me of an episode where they have to prove... The Drumhead. Simon Tarsus was railroaded in that one. And it was basically they were trying to ferret out a collaborator, a traitor. And uh, that was when... Right. Aaron, Judge Admiral Aaron Satie came on board the Enterprise, and they were all already convinced that Simon Tarsus was guilty. And then it kind of leapfrogged a little bit to now Picard was guilty. And that's where she kind of makes her critical misstep is that she moved on and attacked the man himself and went after <laughs> went after Picard and that was never right. going to fly. And that's yeah. and that's essentially where the downfall on that goes. It was, you know, they would already they had already again essentially ruined Tarsus's career and that's right. what Picard talks about. It's how, you know, through this investigation, you were already convinced that this man was guilty. You just now found things to back up your statement of him being guilty, but we don't really have any proof he did anything, but because he has blood ties to a current enemy we've now ruined him yeah wasn't it that he was like part part romulan, romulan like he, yes yeah his, but it was like it wasn't even you know like it was like his, ha- like quarter romulan yeah it was something. like his granddad was a was a romulan or something he wasn't like it wasn't like his mom was human and his dad was a romulan it was like a generation or so removed so he um 
Yeah, what familiar and ties he, he would have had. was he guilty of anything? Like, he, was he truly no. guilty of anything? he wasn't yeah. guilty. But that's, that's what Picard was saying. He wasn't actually guilty. It was just that he had talked to the guy that they later found out was the spy. He had talked to him at one point in the in sickbay when he'd come in to get his regular injections or whatever. And right. because he had talked to him and because he had the blood of a current enemy, they were like, nope, that's it. You're guilty. You did this right. thing. Right. And uh, so, yeah, that's what Picard goes on about. And of course, Seti gets, you know, booted out when it's revealed that she's kind of, that she's lost her way here. Yeah, she kind of yeah. loses her cool at the yeah. end of the episode, too. Yeah, she too. does. I've brought yeah. down bigger men than you, Picard. And uh, <laughs> I was like, uh, he's still sitting there, so no, you haven't. No, you haven't. So, yeah. But yeah, I mean they've 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 done it. TNG's done it. Deep Space Nine's done it. Voyager's done it. Enterprise did it. Um, I'm not surprised if Strange New Worlds follows suit at some point. And of course, you know, um, uh, Discovery in there as well. I mean, it's it's a very common one that we see come up. So I would not be surprised at all if the new shows at some point follow suit as well. Have their own version of that type of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. I'd be interested to see how they how they reach that point, how they get there. But right. um yeah, it's it seems to be a recurring thing that we right. see. Yeah, but, I have to say when uh when that defense attorney dude, let me see if I can remember his name. Kovat. Uh, Kovat. Oh my gosh. When he was first came in there and was talking with O'Brien and he was all simpering and don't you want to confess? This is for the right. good of society. And he was like, I would have, I, I, I was sitting there watching and I was like, if I could, if I was O'Brien, I would strangle this man to death right here and now. No holds barred. And of course, immediately be, you know, there's a guard right outside the door, immediately be stopped. Immediately, this is proof that you're a murderous son of a gun. It would be more evidence against you. They would probably execute you on the spot even. Um, it's almost like he was sent in there to just, you know, get O'Brien to overreact um, more than anything else, mm-hmm. and it would I would have done it. I would have been the guy. I'd have been the guy. <laughs> uh, O'Brien is strangely calmer throughout this episode. I mean, it's almost like, again, I mean, from my perspective, it's like too calm. It's like I would have just killed the guy right then and there for insinuating that I am guilty of something yeah. I can't even. That's the thing that Golovec does when he is uh, being first arrested. Golovec says, we're going to tell you your, what you're guilty of later. Do you want to confess? He says, I don't know what I'm confessing to. So you have information then. No, I don't know what I'm confessing to. So you deny the charges. I don't know what I'm confessing to. Right. <laughs> but I mean, uh, you know, O'Brien also gives a very nice speech later on, which, you know, is kind of highlighting why perhaps he was so calm. You know, he talks about his dedication to to Starfleet and to the Federation and that he took his oath and he takes it very seriously and he wants to be this person who is, you know, he kind of lives up to, lives that ideal, you know. So to me, that would explain why he was in the face of such overwhelming adversity, why he was still so calm and so proud because he was exemplifying the life and the characteristics of the man that he wanted to be as a part of, as a person, a part of Starfleet. Um, you know, not giving in to the fear, not letting them get the best of him, always showing that he is, you know, rising to meet the challenge and not cowering away. So, uh, that was also a really great scene. I really enjoyed 
watching that. We don't really get to see much of uh, Miles O'Brien like that in these first few seasons, you know. So, um, and of course, coming from coming from Next Generation, where you've got Patrick Stewart who delivers such speeches often and with such power and dynamic. Yeah. Right. You, you, yeah, you, you kind of forget <laughs> that there were a lot of great actors on that show because he just, he's so overpowering sometimes, and in a good way. I'm not trying to say like he was like a screen hunger and like that. I think that right. you know, I think Patrick Stewart is a great, fine actor. But right. then we get to see something like this from um, uh, Miles O'Brien's character, you know, or from Miles O'Brien the character. Right. And it's like, man, he, I mean, he was on that show off and on for seven seasons. And we never really got to see stuff like this with him. And so it's great to see here. And I think that the whole thing plays out very well. Even once again, Odo doing a great job in this scene for the little bit that he's in it to help kind of set O'Brien up and then also kind of end the scene with him as well. Um, Odo was, I I thought he was perfect in that scene too. I thought that he delivers his little bit and, it, it almost felt like there was a little bit more emotion there than what was supposed to be, but it it worked for me. I don't know about you, but like I I ended up watching this one again today, and that part really caught me because I don't think I ever really paid attention to it before. And catching the, it now, the Odo O'Brien talk yes, in the cell, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And when he tells him, he's like, yeah, you know, being accused of a crime is not a disgrace. Like yes. that whole thing. That whole many, bit was great. Yeah, great. Uh, so many historical feature, historical figures throughout history have been here just like you. Yeah, you're amongst great men. Uh, not every one of them was a martyr. <laughs> yeah, and he was saying, you know, not all of them were martyrs, and not all of them died, but some were just innocent men. And like I was, I remember listening to it, and I just kind of stopped for a second and was trying to think, you know, like yeah, how many times have innocent people been put to death? Um, you know, by just holding to their convictions, right? Yes. How many people have, you know, been sacrificed for justice, freedom, fairness, liberty, right. like all, all of these things. And, you know, now we see this here once again, even in the future. And the way that, as, way that Odo seemed to be so moved by it, I don't know. Like, I just thought that was the great, like, cap to that scene. Yeah, because we, totally we right. know. I mean, we we know so much about how Odo views justice, yes. and for him to like be so moved by O'Brien and knowing that he's an innocent man, uh, that just it really worked for me. Like again, O'Brien yeah. was great, hands down. He delivered that speech so well, and it almost seemed like yeah, it caught uh, Renee off guard yeah. a little bit, and he got into it a little bit more than he should have. And I just I loved it. I thought they yeah. were great. That was a fantastic scene for this episode. Yeah. I, I have to say, uh, you might ask this question later, who's the standout? Um, O'Brien is the, is the main character, but Odo is the one who, yeah, gives us that scene. He's the one who, when um, O'Brien's in the trial, he's the one who says, how else am I supposed to produce evidence? Um, you know, he's the one who's having to fight for yeah. an innocent man, you know, there's nothing that Odo is sacrificing. There's nothing he would lose if he just walked his, walked away. Um, Odo right. is actually going into the lion's den, quite literally, in a sense, um, by even being there at the trial and antagonizing the judge. Um, so yeah, Odo is uh, is is part of the standout. 
in this episode. He's he's great, and I know why he's your favorite character because of stuff like this. Oh yeah, yeah, hands down. Like I mean, as much as I love, and I will, and Cisco's always going to be up there. Don't get me wrong, but Odo consistently delivers. And I think that's what we've already established so far, just in these two seasons that we've done so far. But he just consistently delivers. Renee Abergenois does such a great job with this character. And um, again, just little things like this, the way that he can go from completely dominating the scene to being like here, kind of like the end cap on the scene. And it adds so much more to it. And to watch the two of them when they were sitting next to each other in the cell and kind of sharing that moment of kind of a mutual respect in despair. Right. You know, I, I loved it. I think I actually rewound it and watched that scene again. Right. So I just like, it just caught me completely off guard. Like as many times as I've seen this episode, um, watching them in that moment, I just, I had a new appreciation for, um, for both of them. Yeah. So, yeah, it was probably the best scene in the whole, whole uh whole episode yeah um i did like the other actors like the woman who's the judge and the defense attorney guy again the names are not in front of me at the moment but um yeah they they did a great job conservator kovat um they did a great job of presenting this twisted version of of a justice system of um you know again if your defense attorney isn't working on your behalf but is actually a member of the of the prosecution on some level. Yeah. Um, you know, that's just a massive perversion of justice. If the Rep- judge, representing the state's interest. Yeah. If the judge and prosecutor have been, the, have been combined into the same person, you know, your prosecutor, if they're allowed to, you know, say what evidence is allowed to be presented. I mean, that's just, just, there's no, there's no hope for justice there. Nope. Um, yeah. So they, they did a great job of, helping present that again when the the judge lady the Akron I believe is what she is mm-hmm. like when she first shows up in, to O'Brien she comes off as nice like oh we're, I'm so sorry you haven't been treated well I told them that you know treat to treat you well um I think she like brings some clothes or something you know like she comes off as like a sympathetic figure at first and then it turns out she is the face of, she she is the one prosecuting him she's the one yeah, you were, sending you were him saying to his it, death. you were saying it right she's the face she's the face of the Cardassian uh justice system she is yes. who we know that's uh yeah she's the she that's her that's her that's her whole role and right. I think that she does a lot to play up her that that reptilian Cardassianness yes. that we've seen a little bit more in Garrick, you know, that kind of more nefarious slinking in the background. She's nice in O'Brien's face, but then as soon as we see her interacting with Cisco on the big view screen, she's tough. She's sharp. She's right. unforgiving, you know, and then of course she's the same when we get into the courtroom and she's, way up high on her little perch and she's glaring down and everything they did in those scenes with her was, it was always um, with that kind of reverence. You're looking up at her. She's always looking yes. down on you. It's very hawkish, very harsh and austere, you know, yes. even on the view screen when they showed her, she's the light the lighting behind her is dark. Her face is illuminated from the bottom up. Right. So she looks very menacing. 
Ethereal. in all of her scenes, right? Yeah. And then, of course, the the hair and everything else that she's got, it just perfectly framed her face, and her eyes were so wide and expressive. It was just a lot to take in, but it just always gave you this look of she is a predator, and she's after O'Brien, in a, and in a larger degree, she's after the Federation. They're trying to put a black mark out there on the Federation because this is going to potentially give them something else later on. That was right. kind of the whole thing with the involvement of the Maquis. And Golovec lays that out, too, that this is a problem in the demilitarized zone, and these are Federation citizens who are causing this problem, and since the Federation won't handle it, and they're we now... We have to. Yeah, they're, if they're arming themselves like this, it's only a matter of time. We have to go in and right. stop this, you know? So, yeah. A lot yeah, of stuff I'm, with that. I'm glad you brought Golovec there too, because when he is at the trial, um, he is you know questioned, you know, cross-examined by Odo about where does this evidence you're presenting about, you know, where you got the information about the the warheads and all that. How did you come to know about all this? And he says that's classified information. Um, well, okay, we need you to prove that you didn't just make this up, that you didn't just, you know, fabricate this evidence. Again, in a real trial, if the jury needs to be escorted out for a time so that the judge and the prosecutor can, and, and the defense attorney can discuss evidence, you know, determine if it's valid evidence, determine if it should be submitted, that is part of the process, in fact. You know, before a, a jury is ever called, one of the first things they do is they have to present the evidence like a grand jury, and the grand jury has to usually indict in, in the most cases. So you have to prove that your evidence is valid before you even get a chance to actually have a full trial. And so for him to be like, I'm not going to tell you, I don't have to tell you. Um, in fact, you know, this is dangerous classified information. Oh, isn't it too bad we're broadcasting this to all of Cardassia? Uh you know, it's like I can't share this information. It's too too sensitive. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's like every element of justice in the Cardassian system is absolutely perverted, mm -hmm. and um, it's a miracle O'Brien survives. <laughs> I mean, and he wouldn't have had they not captured Boone. Like, yeah. if you think about it, that's the major failing of this. If you if you're to go with the whole in universe, you know, plot here. Yeah, Boone did what he was supposed to do. He got O'Brien implicated. He got the weapons, uh, you know, onto the ship in order for again O'Brien to be arrested and so forth. Right. Why did he stay on the station? He, he should have immediately. Been yeah, gone. the the very next ship. He should have been the on very it. next ship. But even after they first arrest him on the station and interrogate him, and he's like, "I got nothing to hide." They get him again later. It's another scene where they, they go back and get him again. He should have been long gone twice over. <laughs> right, right. He he gave them two different opportunities to arrest him and, and to find him. I mean, if, if for whatever reason, if he had to stay on the station, right, the station's huge. There's plenty right. of areas he could have hidden himself in before they would have been able to catch up to him in time to save O'Brien. I mean, if he still needed to just stay on the station, I mean, again, he could have hidden himself. O'Brien would have been executed presumably and they would have found boone maybe two days later or a week later or whatever hiding in one of the you know crawl spaces or something and i mean it would have been way you know too little too late but still he could have made it way more difficult but they found him twice yeah twice yeah. so it doesn't sound like he you know really knew what to do with himself <laughs> and um, maybe after eight years of undercover work he was ready to just be done <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, and I probably thought that this was going to be a way for him to go back home, like find a yeah. way to go back to Cardassia, you right. know. Um, but yeah, he didn't ex- anticipate them, I guess, getting to him quite so quickly. But whatever the thing was, Boom was dumb for uh, not leaving, not yep. leaving. So yep. I didn't really buy that as a as a clever little. Uh, plot device there. They didn't do a good job on selling that one to me. He right. didn't leave. Like yeah. again, I'm just like you. Just implicated the man in a there very was sim- no, serious crime. There was no high tent situation or a tractor beam had to right. drive a ship or they had to send a runabout out or right. a enterprise. A we need ship. you to come save us. Right, from this right. <laughs> like nothing. There was nothing. No, no chase. No hiding. Going through the wormhole. Hiding behind the moon. There should have been some of that. Yeah. For a covert spy who's been at large for eight years, this right. man had no backup plan once he sprung his strap for O'Brien. Yeah. Yeah. Worst spy yeah. ever. <laughs> it's actually Jeez. a pretty brilliant plan otherwise than that, too. The idea yeah. of recording O'Brien's voice, getting in there, stealing some sensitive materials. And, you know, I mean, until Dax, you know, examined the voice evidence, the voice recording... I mean, it doesn't seem like it took her very long to figure out what was going on. But, you know, again, if you have a justice system that railroads you before counter evidence can be produced, the Cardassians, on the face of it, had a, a tight case. You know, he's already has motivation against Cardassians. He's in a position to get the weapons. Uh, they have evidence that he did it, even though it was faked. And uh, they, they caught him with the evidence itself. Yeah, they had a pretty good case to start off. Uh, yeah. Dax and the others hadn't moved quickly, and if if Knucklehead hadn't left the station, uh, or if he had left the station, things would have worked out in Cardassian's favor. Um, so, yeah. I wonder if this is yet another issue of Cardassian jurisprudence and order, as they touted multiple times throughout the episode, running afoul of their own arrogance. <laughs> because they came up with a great plan, but they really failed in the execution of it. Because it was just like they thought everybody else was, I guess, just too stupid to pay attention to everything else. Like they didn't, yeah. they didn't secure Boom away. Like that's a major failing here. They, yeah. they, you know, the voice print, which was the first clue that something else was going on here, was easily found out. Now, right. you know, uh, Makbar, the Akar, uh, yeah, she she um, explained that away when Odo tried to introduce it in court. She's like, oh, yeah, I was sure the Federation would come up with clever evidence and technology trickery to, right. uh, you know, you whatever. The, it's not that we faked the voice. You're faking the voice report. Right. You know, she kind of cast her down. And, you know, it also kind of makes you wonder what exactly, who exactly is Boone? Because they walk in and he gives her a look and she's instantly spinning the story. So right. it almost says to me, she knew him. So did she know about this plan? Oh, or, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, at That's least yeah, she knew about the plan. Yeah. But it's like, I mean, if he's been undercover for eight years, she had to have at least seen this guy's face to know. Because otherwise right. he's just yes. a random human walking into the court. So there were right. several things that they... Obviously, knew they knew Boone was out there. So the fact they did not secure him at all, that's a problem. Yeah. That's a problem. And then, of course, Boone, the other part of this that kind of I wondered about was Boone does transport those photonic warheads onto the O'Brien shuttle, which is then subsequently um, confiscated right. by the Cardassians. What happened to the warheads? 
Did they yeah. give them back to Cisco and company when they left? Right. I bet well, they he, didn't. And here's the other half of that. We were told that there was some information that our group figures out that the Marquis had stolen the the like the blasters, the launchers, the, the, the launchers. Yeah, the launchers. Yeah. So um, it made it look like, well, yeah, O'Brien was helping. He was providing the other half of the. You know, if they have the launchers, they need the warheads. Well, if the Marquis didn't know about the warheads, it makes sense they didn't know about the launchers either. So that means that there's probably evidence the Cardassians set that up too. Now, of course, we don't follow up on that, but it does ask some questions. Were the Maquis stealing that stuff, and the Cardassians knew about it, and therefore, in, in, you know, got O'Brien, or was the Cardassians involved in that part too? Have they set like how many schemes do the Cardassians have going? And the they just and they don't really seem to be good on intelligence gathering and knowing who's going where to do what because they weren't obviously keeping tabs on the Maquis, and they were able to sneak and get a message to Bashir in the infirmary of all places. <laughs> so it's like. How did they get from the Badlands to the infirmary to give this message and and no one in the Cardassian Order knew about it? The Obsidian Order, for all of its power, seems to be slacking. <laughs> or they either, they either they're slacking or they're just not concerned with these matters. And this is some other kind of militaristic machinations that are going on, which I could believe because Gold Dukat is such an arrogant individual. <laughs> um, and he's mentioned in this one as kind of, you know, because uh, Macbar, the Archon, she says, you know, Gold Ducat told me about you when Cisco, you know, comes through. Yeah, you know? right, right. So uh, this could be a military operation trying to get all this stuff, you know, right. versus it being truly the Obsidian Order. But it's just like, I feel like the Obsidian Order wouldn't have been so careless, wouldn't have been so sloppy, and would have got things right with their operative. Right. You know? Yeah. So yeah, just a lot of things that just it's like we've already heard certain things about the Cardassians and the way they look at society in general, but then this episode they kind of fall apart on. If this had been the Obsidian Order doing an op, right? I feel like it would have been way more meticulous and there wouldn't have been so many loose ends and they would have maybe instead of trying to argue their way out of O'Brien's execution might have had to mount a rescue and yeah. potentially start a war. But maybe yeah. they went this way on purpose so that we didn't get into a war with this new crew, which, again, we're only in season two. They right. don't know each other that well. And even O'Brien says that when he begins his speech to Odo. He's yeah. like, yeah, I know we haven't known each other very long, Constable, but, you know. Right. So, right. yeah, they haven't been working together long enough. So they're not quite the tried and true tested crew right? Uh, yet. They're getting yeah. there, but not yet. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I, I'll let's go ahead and say it now. I feel like that's still kind of a, a thing that Deep Space Nine is kind of struggling with more so than I feel Enterprise, or the, sorry, TNG was uh, struggling with. I mean, season two of TNG was still early enough on that, yeah, I would say that they were still working out their kinks too. Yeah. Um, but it it works easier on, on the TNG show on these, or on there because – you know, they're going on away missions. They are all working on the bridge. They're all part of the Federation. Yeah. Whereas our crew is half hodgepodge. Yeah. 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 Quark, who's just there to serve bar. And you got Cisco, who has a kid. Yeah. There's, there's a hodgepodge that uh, makes for an interesting and different show, but yeah. it doesn't gel in the same cohesive way that. Yeah. Uh, they, the they haven't, they haven't found that yet. Cause I mean, again, with the TNG crew, um, you know, they, 
they all knew their positions and there was no right. question of authority. There right. was no, and there was no multiple legal systems to have to work in, you know, Picard was it. He was the top, you know, and then they worked down from there. Right. And uh, yeah, it, regardless of other personal relationships, they knew professionally where they stood and that was kind of their basis for doing things. And, you know, season two of next generation is my favorite season and oh. watching them have those moments where they're kind of getting those more personal bits, but right. those personal things work so well because it's also their personal, but within those parameters of their particular roles as chief medical officer, first officer, engineer, so forth and so on. Right. You know, um, here on next generation, we have been kind of all over the place. We've been on Bajor more times than we can count. And we've seen everything from various political upheavals to fighting mythical monsters to now the <laughs> yes. new Kai. I mean, yeah. that's a, that's a wide spectrum. If you think about it, that right. we've covered in just two seasons, we've yeah. got this trill who's dealing with multiple lifetimes and never really seems to know what the hell she's going through at any moment or at any point of the time. Neither Cis is the show. <laughs> right, right. Cisco is doing everything from trying to raise his kid to battling PTSD to falling in love. I mean, he's also all over the place at this right. point in the story. Yeah. So that seems to be the the thought process behind this show. They have started really big with these characters, and now they're slowly starting to narrow their focus. Things are getting resolved here and there, and we're getting kind of into the what these characters are really about. I think we've kind of nailed it with Kira at this point, and now we're starting to see it with other characters. So, um, I again, that's another reason why I really appreciate this episode with O'Brien and with Odo, because we get to see another side of both of them. Another way that Odo appreciates justice, another way in which O'Brien views himself not just as um, a Starfleet officer, but as a man. You know? Right. So, great stuff. Great stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this was a good one. I would say this is an episode that, um, again, if the Cardassians are our kind of, you know, background villainous antagonistic group, you know, they come in every now and then. But this is the first time I can really think of where they 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 as a as a society, not just Gold Ducat, not just you know the Garrick the, or Inabrintain. Yeah, it's not like one specific you know, Cardassian was playing some shenanigans. Nah, no, this was the Cardassians themselves. We went to Cardassia Prime this episode for the first time. Mm -hmm. So we really got to see into the Cardassian uh, society. We got to, you know, really notice that they seemed as a society to be bent on kind of devious, underhanded, you know, ways of doing things. Um, the, the real question, of course, I feel like, you know, the, the 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 Romulans are always shown to be you know conniving, and then we saw that one episode where you know it's um, Spock you know trying to you know make changes there, and we had like an underground group of Romulans who are trying to make change, but they couldn't. They were too small, and the one senator who seemed to be supporting them was actually a double agent. You know, he was actually trying to capture Spock or something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. So this is another episode where I feel like I question like how much is this Cardassian society that's broken? You know, the people in charge are broken. How many of the, of the people are, have like an underground. I mean, we've seen underground resistance fighters that, that there's that one Cardassian woman with her students that, you know, Quark loved once upon a time. Uh, she was part of an underground, but um, that was still seemingly an aberration uh, not, not you know, like the society is pretty set in mm -hmm. its in its ways. 
Um, be curious to to examine that more. I don't know if we ever will, but we'll get yeah. there with some of the other ones. And I will also read just touch real quickly on that old Vulcan Romulan thing. Uh, don't give up hope. You said it failed. I'm just gonna let ah. you mild spoiler for another Trek show. We're not gonna we're not gonna <laughs> name, but uh, yeah, don't don't uh, don't say it failed. If there's one thing you discovery should know, in the year two thousand nine hundred and forty five. Yeah, <laughs> all I'm saying is, as far as we know, Spock has never failed. That's all I'm gonna say. Ah, Spock has never failed. Well, so. He does have a long life to make use of his uh, abilities. So. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so we have talked already. We've said it. You know what was the best scene? What do you feel would be something that we really didn't need in this episode? Um, fell flat or otherwise was just unnecessary. Um, I don't think there was anything of that kind. In fact, there was one thing I really loved about this episode was the beginning. Um, Keiko O'Brien, uh, Rosalind Chow as Keiko. She was lovely this episode. The, yeah. Their, their romantic kissing, you know, like, oh, the seat won't lean back. Well, you're an engineer. You can make it, you can make it work like that. They're, <laughs> they're, they're having a private moment right before Golovec, you know, interrupts it. Um, I feel like that was the moment for me where I really feel like they are truly a married couple. And like, like we've seen them married. We've seen them do things together throughout these last two seasons. But you might remember that I thought that when they first got married back on TNG, that it seemed a bit awkward. Like they hadn't mm-hmm. really worked out their kinks. This, this, that scene, I was like, oh, okay, yep. I mean, not that I doubted it, but this was the first time I was like, 100%, these two are great together. Yeah. Rosalind Chow is lovely. Miles O'Brien is is great. They're a great couple. Um, and to see them kind of go through this together, like the whole idea of bringing Keiko to Cardassia was to let her weep on, on television and humiliate herself. And O'Brien was like, don't bring her. I don't want her to see me like this. And then she's there at the trial and she's like, I'm not going to weep. You know, I, I got mm, a backbone. Defiant. Um, right. Yeah. She was the, the kind of more subtle uh, star of this, of this episode. Oh yeah. Uh, there's nothing that needed to be pulled. Um, if anything, like we said, we need to give a better reason for why Boone was captured. <laughs> right. Oh, Rosalind Chow is, is great. And I mean, there are a lot of people who don't like her character. Don't like Keiko very much. Um, they, I've heard everything from kind of the more bland of she doesn't really fit to she holds O'Brien back and they're kind of glad when she's not around things like that. I don't agree. I think she adds a very, you know, nice, lovely softness to the show that is sometimes missing because right. she does care so much for O'Brien and her family and stuff, you know. Right. Um, and I, I've always enjoyed whenever she was on. I... I didn't as much on Next Generation, but mainly because we didn't really see her a whole lot. So yeah. it wasn't because, like, there was a sudden, you know, there's this sudden abundance of Keiko that, and she was an annoying character. It's just, we didn't really see her a whole lot. But now that we get to see her as a more fleshed out character, kind of like O'Brien, yeah. the two of them together, I feel like they do complement each other well. And the more that we see them together, the more they do, to me, make sense. And yeah. I I like watching them. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I would say, to kind of summarize, I felt like they were an immature couple on TNG, and I think that might be why people didn't like her in particular, because yeah. O'Brien was just, you know, the transporter guy. Uh, but now, this scene in particular was, they're they're a mature couple. Yeah. They have a five-year-old yeah. daughter. I loved, actually, you know, Brian's like, oh, I forgot the camera, we could go back to the station, and we could bring her with us, and mm-hmm. uh, she happy with the Richardsons, and Keiko's like, yes, she loves them, They pro- she probably likes them more than she likes us. 
um, yeah, it was it was a cute scene uh, to see O'Brien still in his you know still not quite able to get over work. Yeah, he realizes his wife is trying to like you know have a moment. Have, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that was fun, and you, again, you feel terrible as soon as you know Golden it's also- shows up. It's also a very 90s scene. If you watch a lot of 90s TV, that tends to be how it goes. You know, the the seemingly absent-minded father who forgets little things here and there and is still focused on work while his wife is trying to make this a moment about them and not just his work or whatever. And it takes him a moment before he realizes that he's being a, he's being a jerk and he needs to pay attention to her, you know, that again, very nineties. So I, I appreciated it for that as well. Cause I was like, even for a show set in the future, y'all still can't get away from these nineties tropes. (laughs) So, um, just I, but again, even even with all that going on, I still think that Rosalind Chow is a great addition to the show, and we, you know, you get a little bit more when she's on. Um, but speaking of Rosalind Chow, I will also say that um, to remind everybody, I've been watching ER and uh, another show that was very popular in the '90s. And to correct myself, I said last time when I mentioned ER that I thought it was in New York since Chicago Hope was in Chicago. I was incorrect. It's also in Chicago. So there were two medical shows in Chicago, but everybody seemed to be on ER and Rosalind Chow was on ER. I watched her today in an episode and I was just floored. I was like, what did you guys do? Was everything filmed like on the same lot down the same street? And y'all were just probably not half wrong. Right. Probably not half wrong. Just (laughs) running down the street from series to series, filming your sections and then moving on. Because seriously, I'm now in season five, almost to season six. And I have seen so many people run through this show and it's right. like what were you doing alan alda the you know from from mash yeah he was on um er and he had a very long stint on er um who else uh connor trainer i said i think i talked about him last week he's on he was the engineer on enterprise he's on ER. There hasn't, I mean, just seriously, I've just been sitting here watching and I was like, you know what? I kind of need to go back and just start ticking boxes to see who pops up. And I'm just waiting. I was like, at this point, I'm waiting for Avery Brooks to show up on an episode of ER because everybody (laughs) else seems to come through here. So very interesting the way that that works out. Just that's how it seems to me. Like they went, okay, Monday I'm filming uh deep space nine tuesday i'm on er wednesday i'm on chicago hope thursday well did you double check like did you compare when she was on er versus what like season of deep space nine i didn't but based upon how she looked in the episode that i watched had to be around the same time yeah had to be yeah i mean i would imagine if i mean er was a 90s show yeah correctly and i forgot to mention i don't know if i mentioned last week ER apparently was the show that my parents used to watch when I was a kid. Like they would put us to bed and that was the show they'd watch after we went to bed at eight o'clock. Well, I remember it being the show that was coming on and yeah, it would be, that would be the time that I had to like go and lay out clothes for school and get ready for, you know, take your bath and all that kind of stuff and have, have my winding down moment. So then I was basically doing other things while my mom was watching ER. Yeah, you know, and then I would hear it, and I would see little bits of it, and then yeah, by the time it was over with, I was it was bedtime. Go to school. You got to get ready right. for school the next day. That kind of stuff. So yeah, gotcha. I gotcha. mean, yeah, right around the same. 
But yeah, I just uh, it's just cracking me up how many of them are on these are on these same shows back right. to back. So I don't know. Maybe they. Uh, I'm I'm reading her her Wikipedia and whatever else. Apparently, she was on Mash as well. So. Really? Yeah, her wow. and Alan Alda, they just been working together for forever. And so, like, yeah, they were doing ER, they did Star Trek, they did The West Wing, they, like, everybody was doing all the same shows around the same time. Like, <laughs> okay, I yeah. guess. Huh. Well. Who knows? Well, we have talked about all of it. All of the And things. then some. Yep. Um, any final thoughts on this episode, The Tribunal? O'Brien is a calmer man than I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's I the think takeaway. I think a lot of us could say the same. He took he took his uh, suffering in stride. Yeah, much better than we probably would have. But that just goes to show why he's maybe perhaps a better man. Yeah. So there. <laughs> um, I will also say that this episode was also the first that Avery Brooks directed. Really? This is the first of nine. He direct, handed wow. directing nine episodes of Deep Space Nine. This is the very first one. There were some behind-the-scenes murmurings, mumblings, grumblings about him. Apparently, his directing style was um, kind of hard for some people to um, take to take to understand. Uh, there's a famous, there's a story that one that his assistant director talked about, in which you know he met with uh, Cisco or Avery Brooks in the in the Quark's bar set. They weren't using the set at the time, so it was really dark. And he kind of walked in, and Avery Brooks is standing there in the shadows, <laughs> you know. And uh, you know he said something to the effect of, um, you know, I need you to give me what I need. And the guy was like, well, I need you to tell me what that is that you need. You don't really say anything. You're very closed off. And um, Cisco or Cisco Brooks counters <laughs> with, uh, I see you don't understand my sense of humor. And the guy says, with all due respect, sir, I don't think you have one. <laughs> so, and apparent, but apparently that uh, was enough that like got them to actually start communicating more and uh, working together. And it, it worked out better for them after that. Yeah. But, that was yeah. kind of the recurring theme was that Avery Brooks is a bit more um, eccentric to say the least than some others that they had to work with. <laughs> but once you kind of got used to him, apparently things. Flowed. Yeah. Things yeah. There's better. always that getting. Yeah. Yeah. New, uh, new coworkers challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Man, we so, have talked about all the things tonight. Yeah. So this one, throw that little tidbit in there. And as a final tidbit, I did get the chance while I was talking about all that to look it up. And yes, Rosalind Chow was on Star Trek Deep Space Nine at the same time that she was on ER. So there you go. Well, guys, I think that will officially be it for this episode. We've gone much longer on this one than perhaps we should have. Um, Hopefully you guys enjoyed that extra bit of us and Star Trek. Um, as always, you can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts as The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. I happen to listen to us on Spotify. And again, please find us, like us, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, all the things where we can share other additional notes, comments, and whatever else with you as we continue through. Almost done with Season 2. One more episode left, Woo-hoo. and then we'll be on to some other great stuff with Star Trek. But 
Until next time, take care of yourselves. Thanks, guys.